1: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio.
0: What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. It's nice to have Jeffrey Stone back on the program. He's a First Amendment scholar, he is the Edward Levy Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago Law School. And he's teamed up with Lee Bollinger, who's the president of Columbia University, to publish National Security Leaks and Freedom of the Press, the Pentagon Papers, 50 years on. The way in which they've approached this project, and I'll let Professor Stone explain in just a moment, but they put together what they regard as a, a national security all-star team, a a commission of sorts, to, in individual chapters, reflect on the significance and the legacy of this very famous Supreme Court case. Professor Stone, thanks so much for coming back to the program.
2: My pleasure. Always delighted.
0: Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. It reads in part. I didn't fully appreciate or maybe I'd forgotten that although the Bill of Rights was adopted in 1789, it wasn't until 1911 that the Supreme Court of the United States began to have something to say about what those words actually mean.
2: Right. Well, part of the reason is that it applies only to the federal government as it was originally understood and enacted. And for the most part, the federal government was not regulating speech in the way the states were. Um, But uh, beginning in in 1919, during World War I, uh, the Supreme Court became increasingly involved in interpreting the First Amendment. And then later it held that the First Amendment, like most of the other guarantees of the Bill of Rights, are also applicable to the states but that dramatically expanded the number of cases that raise questions about the meaning of that provision
0: 1971 is what brings the new york times versus united states aka the pentagon papers case I frankly didn't realize until I read a recent Atlantic essay by Ben Bradley Jr. that Daniel Ellsberg is still with us, apparently living comfortably in, in Berkeley, California. Let's not take for granted that listeners, viewers know the background of the Pentagon Papers case. Who is Ellsberg and what went on here?
2: So Daniel Ellsberg had worked within the government um, and in the national security realm for a number of years. And originally, he was a strong supporter of the Vietnam War. But as the years went on, he became increasingly skeptical about it. And uh, Robert McNamara, when he was Secretary of Defense several years earlier, um, had commissioned a 7,000-page report about the history behind the scenes of the Vietnam War. And Ellsberg had access to that. And as he read it, he realized that it disclosed a lot of information uh, that was quite different from what the uh, government of the United States had had explained to the American people about the war, and that there was a lot of dishonesty involved uh, on the part of the federal government. Um, and he decided that it was important for the American people to know this. So he decided to essentially smuggle that 7,000-page document out of the uh, Pentagon. Um, and, of course, in those days, you had to do it by effectively uh, – Stealing a small number of pages every day, Xeroxing them, bringing the ones you've stolen back, and then taking another small set. So it took him quite a while to get it all uh, stolen and Xeroxed. And then he turned it over to uh, the New York Times first, and then later to reporters at the Washington Post. Um, And they then reviewed the materials decided to delete those portions of it that they thought might be harmful to national security, as by the way did Ellsberg before he gave it to the New York Times or the Post himself, and then the New York Times started publishing it. Um, And when that happened, uh, the Nixon administration uh, was furious and uh, decided to seek an injunction against the Times and then the Post to prevent them from continuing to publish the materials. Case went very quickly up to the Supreme Court of the United States which in a landmark decision held that uh, it was unconstitutional for the government to attempt to prevent uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post from publishing that material, even though it was stolen national security, top secret classified material, even though the New York Times and the Post knew that it had been stolen top secret material, um, unless the government could prove that the publication of the material would create a clear and present danger of grave harm to the nation. And the Supreme Court justices, the majority of them, said that the government had not made such a showing and therefore that the Times and the Post could continue in their publications. Um, so that is a profoundly speech protective, press protective understanding of the First Amendment. Ellsberg seems like note, a, a pretty
0: Ellsberg seems like a pretty interesting guy, a, a Harvard educated, one time zealous Marine.
2: Yes. Um, and he was prosecuted later by the government. Uh, for what he did. And um, the uh, Nixon administration prosecutors um, uh, broke into his, his Ellsberg psychiatrist's office uh, to get information about him relative to the case. And when the trial judge learned that, uh, the judge dismissed the prosecution on the grounds that it was a violation of the, of the Fourth Amendment rights of Ellsberg for the government to have done that. So he never actually was prosecuted um, or convicted for what he did.
0: G. Gordon Liddy uh, recently passed. And Professor Stone, uh, this burglary of Ellsberg's Beverly Hills psychiatrist is often referred to as sort of the precursor or the warm up job for the Watergate burglary, which occurred, I think, within a year thereafter.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, this was this was part of the uh, strategy of the Nixon administration to uh, engage in unlawful searches uh, in order to gather information or to undermine their opponents. Um, And this was exactly the same group that was involved in the two incidents.
0: So the the issue that gets presented in the Pentagon Papers and and cases thereafter is this balancing act that you describe as one of the government's need to conduct its operations and the public's right to know what the government is doing. How did the court approach it in a six to three decision where every justice felt compelled to write their own opinion?
2: Well, basically, the majority of the justices took the view that uh, press freedom is essential to our democratic society and to the First Amendment, and that for the government to uh, enjoin the press from publishing information uh, is an extreme intrusion into that freedom and therefore is not permissible uh, unless the government can demonstrate clear and present danger of grave harm, which in, in the Fifty years since the Pentagon Papers case, the government has never demonstrated in the context of any leak that the press has published. On the other hand, what makes this state of the law so complex and confusing is that at the same time that the court held that the press has a basically unlimited right to publish national security information if they can get their hands on it, it's also made clear that a government employee has no right to leak that information and can be criminally prosecuted if they leak the information to the press, period, and that the press has no right to the information to publish it. So we have this kind of bizarre situation in which, on the one hand, the press has a virtually absolute right to publish if they get the information, but they have no right to get the information. And a government employee who leaks it, even if the press has a right to publish it, can be criminally prosecuted for doing so. And that compromise, this weird kind of compromise, has worked pretty well, ironically, over the past half century.
0: Well, I'm sure when you say that, many people who are listening will immediately think of Snowden.
2: Um, Right. And Snowden, under the existing law, uh, could be criminally prosecuted um, for his disclosure of the information, even though um, the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, could not be punished for publishing the information that he disclosed to them. Um, and again, that seems ironic, but this is part of the way that the court has tried to come up with a compromise. Um, to say that a, a public employee can leak information whenever the information would not create a clear and present danger of grave harm to the government would do severe harm to the national security. So the compromise the court reached is this weird one, which says the press can publish it, but you can't leak it, and. What's happened in recent years is the situation has gotten far more complex because, as I mentioned, when Ellsberg leaked the information, he had to literally steal pages, Xerox them, and was very limited in the amount of material, realistically, that he could um, disclose. Today, given technology, um, the ability of, of a Snowden to disclose millions of times more information than Ellsberg was ever capable of disclosing has created much greater vulnerability to the national security community. Um, And at the same time, the number of government employees and private contractors who now have access to to classified information is many, many times greater than it was in 1970.
0: Professor so the risk of
2: leaks is much greater than it was in the past.
0: So for in lay terms, so for the government to prevent, cease, stop a publication, to obtain a, a prior restraint, you keep saying that there would need to be some documentation of a clear and present danger. What does that mean? Does that mean people will die if you print the story?
2: So one example might be suppose that um, the New York times gets access to the names of individuals in the middle East who are secret agents working with and giving information to the United States and is about to publish the names of those individuals that would be a hypothetical where one might say that this would lead inevitably to the murder of those individuals. And even if not the murder the capture of those individuals, and they would be forced to reveal all sorts of information that would undermine the national security of the United States. So that might be a hypothetical in which one would say the government interest is sufficiently great that it would have a right to prohibit the publication of the names of those individuals. Um, what? When, you another,
0: look at when yeah, I'm sorry, one, tell me when you look at a fifty year legacy of a of a case like this, and you say, well the, the case wasn't written at a time that envisioned smartphones because Daniel Ellsberg literally was xeroxing i I wonder how many who are listening to us even know what that reference means, I certainly do um does it clearly envision who who, or what constitutes the press? Because, you know, today everybody with a smartphone in their pocket thinks they're a member of the media.
2: Well, this is another major problem uh, that the book talks about and the court at some point will have to address. Um, in the Pentagon Papers case, the court was talking about the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they were clearly the press within the meaning of the First Amendment. But given the extraordinary expansion in the ability of, both individuals and organizations, to disclose information around the world without going through anything like the conventional mainstream press. The problem is who gets to claim the privileges of the press. The Supreme Court up to this point has been extremely reluctant to interpret the phrase the press as defining a limit on the scope of the First Amendment. So the court had a case around the same time as the Pentagon Papers case in which a reporter was called into a criminal trial as a witness and asked to disclose the identity of a confidential source um, who was relevant to the criminal prosecution going on. And the reporter said, no, that would violate the the freedom of the press. I should have a right to keep confidential the names of my sources. The Supreme Court said, no, the First Amendment does not give the reporter a right to do that. And part of the reason, the court took that position; is it didn't want to have to define who is the press and who's not the press. And today, that's a thousand times more complicated than it was back then. So, this is another complication that's going to have to be resolved uh, at some point in the in the near future. This is the Book Club
1: with Michael Smirnoff podcast from Sirius XM.
0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over
1: and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
2: Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee Governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. SiriusXM XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
0: In your closing argument for the book, we don't want to give it all away for free, but you say that the case, among other things, reinforced the notion that the press has a semi-official role to play in a democracy. What does that mean?
2: Well, it basically means that the, the press is an institution that the framers of our constitution um, understood to be essential to the effective functioning of democracy. People need to get information about their government, about their elected officials, about policies, and that without a free and open and robust press, one cannot have a well-functioning democracy. And therefore, it is essential to protect the press when it fulfills that function. But that gets complicated uh, in situations, particularly when we're not clear about how we want to define who the press is.
0: The book is called National Security Leaks and Freedom of the Press The Pentagon Papers 50 Years On. Professor Jeffrey Stone, what's the takeaway? What do you want to leave people with who perhaps were unfamiliar with the Pentagon Papers up until this moment?
2: Basically, that this is a fundamental and complex problem. Um, we brought together uh, important people from the national security world, including the former director of the NSA, former director of the CIA. Um, important people from the journalist world, um, reporters who do national security journalism for the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, legal scholars on the First Amendment. And the idea was to get them to engage with one another about these issues. And the main takeaway is that we face a major challenge. It's not clear what the solutions are. There's no obvious right and wrong solutions. Um, But there are ways of moderating some of the existing problems. And it's important that we look seriously at those solutions and at those changes, so as to revise the system to make it more effective in the present world.
0: I thought that the contributors were very illuminating, and just one top of mind example is Mike Morrell, who mm-hmm. said, uh, it, you know, part of his responsibility was to prepare the the PDB for a number of years, and he made the observation that in contrast to the stereotypical or Hollywood version of who the leaker is that the vast majority of leaks have nothing to do with wrongdoing and are often inter-office politics and the settling of petty grievances. But nevertheless, they present this same issue under the Pentagon Papers that you've identified.
2: Right. And when that happens, though, the government rarely prosecutes. Um, So Mike's right that that is, is a large portion of the leaks that go on. But the government pursues the leakers, basically in situations where they feel that there has been substantial um, harm to the national security. Um, But you're right. I mean, there are lots more leaks that go on all the time by elected officials, uh, members of Congress and members of the administration and so on, because it's politically convenient for them to do that, or personally convenient for them to do that, that the government doesn't bother to prosecute, but also because it doesn't actually pose a serious harm to the nation.
0: Yeah. And seemingly fewer, at least thus far, on the watch of Joe Biden than had been the case with with Donald Trump. Professor Stone, the book is terrific, very insightful. Thank you so much for writing it and your willingness to come on the program and discuss it. Wish you good things.
2: My pleasure always. And thanks so much, Michael. You do a great job. I appreciate it.
0: Nice to say that. That's Professor Jeffrey Stone from the University of Chicago Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, appreciate him coming back to the show.
1: Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing